Let me start this morning by reading something from the Associated Press that says the nation's jobless ranks Zoom past 10 million last month, the most in a quarter century. Piles of pink slips shut factory gates. Politicians and economists agreed on a painful bottom line. It's only going to get worse. Unemployment soared to a 14-year high. More grim news for U.S. automakers. They are figured to make more cuts before long. Regulators have shut down banks, bringing the number of bank failures this year to 19. That article sounds a lot like what's being said today, but that's from 2008. You remember going back to 2008 when the economy had all the problems. People then were the naysayers, the fear mongers, said we may never recover, or if we would, it would take decades. And of course, we then recovered in a short time, had this booming economy. And now there's another challenge in our culture. And again, history just repeats itself. And what we want to see, yes, there's fear mongers. Yes, there's doubts. Yes, there's uncertainty. Those same voices, why they keep saying the things they say. And what's the truth in the light of the gospel? Something you're going to see is very different than maybe what is popular on a lot of people's channels of the news that they're watching. You know, C.S. Lewis has been quoted a lot lately when he said this in the 1940s when there was stress about atomic weapons. He said they may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. We're going to look at something that should dominate our minds, especially when there's challenging times like this, because ultimately who we are in Christ and who he is in our life leads to an ultimate victory in all things. You know, there's the naysayers with fear. We'll see why some people do that, but there's the truth in Christ, which says we have victory in all things. You know, Tony Schwartz, he shares, we get up in the morning and we have limited willpower when we wake up. And then we use that willpower on things that don't help us, like holding down destructive emotions or dealing with inner conflict or having fear about things we can't control. We're going to talk about what is in control in Christ as we look at something here today. Remember Paul said this, Ephesians 3.13, his prayer was that people would know and have the promise that Christ dwell in your hearts richly. The key word there is dwell, that Christ dwell in your heart, not visit, that we dwell in Christ, we don't visit, that he lives in us, that his promise is greater is he in you than he in the world. It's an ongoing process, moment to moment, not a a momentary thing, but a, a permanent process because Christ now lives in you. He lives in me. You know, the world, it always needs people who are going to stand confidently on their faith and proclaim, you know, Christ is king of all. We're going to see that in the promises of believers down through the century, but most important in scripture here. Jack Canfield said it so well. He said, most everything you want is just outside your comfort zone. You know, that's true. It's true in life. It's true in faith. It's true now with all the fear and uncertainty. But it'll be true when this is over and there's challenges in individual lives or if there's corporate problems again. Everything we want is outside that comfort zone. But in faith, we can step outside that comfort zone because we know who we are in Christ. So let's look at our confession of faith according to Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Here's what he says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That declaration that he says there, you'll declare Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is Savior, though he is that, but he's so much more. When you say he is Lord, you're proclaiming he is supreme. He's eternal. He has the right to rule and that he reigns now, this day, not in some day. 
If you go back to that first Pentecost, when they saw miracles and signs with the apostles, they asked Peter, what does this mean? He says, this is evidence that he, Jesus, has been crowned both Christ and King. When we say Jesus is Lord, we say he reigns now, not a someday hope, but a here and now understanding. That's what believers have always known. Yes, there are people today that speak about defeat. They talk about apocalyptic themes, and they are very convincing in some things they say, but that is not the scriptural promise. Jesus doesn't come back for a church that's defeated and destroyed. He comes back for a victorious bride that's been renewed and brought the gospel to the world. Believers through time, if you look at things like hymns, understood that. Go back to 1700s with Handel when he made the Messiah. One of the most beautiful songs, if not the most beautiful in all of history. At the time he made that song, he was bankrupt. He was facing debtor's prison. A friend brought a partial piece of this song to him and Handel took it. And he said he just wrote 24 days nonstop. And he wrote, you know, what we know is Handel's Messiah. 24 days straight, he didn't sleep some nights. Oftentimes, he didn't eat. When he finished, he said, I did see heaven open. What are the words to Handel's Messiah? He shall reign when? Forever and ever. He is king of kings when? Forever and ever. And the next line, he is Lord of Lords. He reigns over all things. Of course, then the next part is the hallelujah, hallelujah, which means praise him. But he reigns forever and ever. He's the king of kings forever, ever. And he's Lord of Lords. This is why missionaries, you know, they would risk life and limb in foreign lands. Men like Jim Elliott, William Carey, David Livingston, women like Amy Carmichael Wilson. They were convinced that the gospel can, will, and does succeed. That's why they risked their entire life to go into foreign countries when they knew they might not be coming home. As David Chilton said, they would stride fearlessly into the farthest reaches of pagan Europe as if they were at the head of an army, preaching the gospel, driving out demons, smashing idols, converting whole kingdoms. Here's the key, because they knew they would win. You know, many gave up their lives in the struggle, but they were certain history was on their side, that Satan's domains were being shattered daily, that his illegitimate hold would weaken and slip with every advance of the gospel. And as you study missionaries' lives that were martyred or going down through church history with church fathers, account after account would say they died with a hymn on their lips or praying for the people that persecuted them. One of the favorite songs we sing at Christmas time, think about this, Joy to the World, verse 1. What's the, what's the lyrics there? Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let heaven receive her king. Verse 2, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Verse 3, he comes to make his blessings flow. How far does that blessing flow? The words tell us, far as the curse is found. And then verse 4 says, he rules the world with truth and grace. So missionaries, hymn writers, theologians, always down through history understood the ultimate promise is we proclaim Christ is Lord, knowing that promise that he's Lord, he's reigning over all things and everything's moving to his purpose, which we'll see what that is here in a moment. You know, Bruce Porterfield, a missionary, he lost a friend to headhunters in Brazil in the 1950s. 
And he was shattered by that, as anybody would be. He went back, though, onto the mission field. Why would he do that? He said, it's for us to furrow the ground, for others to plant the seed and reap the harvest. As surely as day follows night, that harvest will come. The gospel will be victorious. Polycarp, 150 AD, one of the church fathers that uh, you know wrote a lot of theology, also martyred, though, but uh, the police of Rome came to his farmhouse and he said to them, you know, can I make you dinner if you'll allow me to pray before we go? He knew that he was going to be martyred, whether it was going to be with the, the gladiator ring or thrown to the lions. And the soldiers said, sure. And so he spent two hours praying, remembering the highs and lows of life, remembering anybody who had come in and out of his life, praying for the church. He was then taken to the stadium he was given more chances that, you know, deny Christ, worship the Roman gods, and we'll let you live. And Polycarp famously said, I served him 86 years, and in no way has he dealt unjustly with me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then he was executed there because he wouldn't deny the faith. Because I understood that the gospel is the promise that Christ reigns. Even though there's challenges in our lives, in our culture, it doesn't change that he is crowned both king and Christ. So let's take a look at, we've looked at missionaries, we've looked at hymn writers, theologians. Let's see what people in the Old Testament looked forward to in the Messiah to see where they understood Jesus is taking us. And we'll see that played out in the New Testament as well. The standard in scripture is the Garden of Eden where the first Adam fell and Christ, the last Adam, is returning all things. What was the garden like? No sin, no death, no disease, people walking with God. But let's see this in scripture. You turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's the promise to the people at a time when their culture was in ruins. God promised, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. And people will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the garden of Eden. And the nations will know, I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and replanted what was desolate. Again, the standard, what's it going to look like when it's rebuilt? People will say it's like the Garden of Eden. God rebuilds what's destroyed. He replants what was desolate. That's true in our individual lives. It's true corporately. It's true that that's where world history is moving. Yes, we understand the battle is real today, but the outcome is sure. And even though there are people today that try to destroy that outcome, it won't happen because Jesus is Lord and history is moving in the direction that he proclaims it will with the gospel invading the world. Why is it that there's so much disagreement in our culture? Why is this continue? And hopefully some of these you know, things I mentioned today, we understand in each of these places, there's godly people. But listen to something Brandon House shares. You know, again, it's not a secret what people are trying to do if you watch the media, you watch certain people, certain politicians, because they've always been doing the things they're doing. The secret, though, is not a secret. It's not hidden what Jesus is making clear is going to happen in the world. You know, the, the counterculture revolution Brandon House speaks about of the 60s. It was largely the promotion of mysticism, pagan spirituality, and socialism. And Brandon House says, many of those 60s radicals grew up to become educators, reporters, elected officials, corporate officers, and leaders in politics. Again, we stop and wonder why there's so much disagreement in our culture, especially those that oppose the promise of Christ. We simply need to stand and understand that that opposition is because there are those we'll see 
embrace that promise and proclaim Jesus is Lord. There are those that stand in opposition of that. But that doesn't change that Jesus is moving things, restoring things to one day look like that garden where people will say this land that was laid to waste, talking about the world, has become like the Garden of Eden. And God rebuilds what's destroyed. He replants what is desolate. So let's look at a metaphor that is often used to describe Eden as well as our spiritual life. That metaphor is gold. Genesis chapter 2, we're told of the garden. There is gold there, and the gold of that land is good. Ezekiel 28 is a description of the garden. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorns you, cornelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, turquoise, beryl, and your settings and mountings were made of gold. Eden was just covered with uh, the gold and jewels, and that's the promise that's spoken of there. And again, it's a promise. Why? Why is gold something represented in Scripture? Well, because gold is something that represents royalty. It represents abundance. It represents blessing. It also represents something that is pure, as gold is pure when, when all of the dross is removed. And all these things apply to us to understand. It's not about you know a physical wealth. Those things are empty apart from Christ. But it is to understand what our calling is in him to be royal, to live in abundance, to have the blessing, to be pure. Go back to Genesis 24. Isaac, first engagement in scripture. What's it say? He gave Rebekah a gold ring weighing one-fifth of an ounce and two gold arm bracelets weighing about four ounces each. Gold, again, represents value. Of course, one of the more just famous parts, Matthew 2, the Magi appear at the Christmas story and they open their treasures and presented to Jesus gifts of, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As David Chilton says, it, it seems to be there's a built-in attraction to each of us to understand there's something precious about metals and stones and jewels. But again, those things are temporary because there's nothing apart from him, but they are to point us to the promise that that is where we are called to understand that royal calling. Contrast all of this picture of the abundance of gold back in Eden or the decorating the temple and contrast that today with how hard it is to mine gold, a sign of the fall. But again, the standard, the promise, it shows abundance. And at one point, gold was simply everywhere to remind people, look back to Eden. That's where things are returning. But it's always been a spiritual picture as well. Faith is more precious than gold. And if you go to 2 Timothy, this is Paul's last letter. He's in prison. He's going to be martyred. He tells Peter, excuse me, he tells Timothy, stay away from this man named Demas. He said, Demas, you know, he was a fellow worker, but he has deserted the faith because he loved this world. And Demas has left Paul and gone back to sin. And then Paul says, here's how you should live, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. He says, consider a large house contains not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use and others are for common use. So you imagine dishes, gold and silver, those are for special use. Ones of wood and clay, those are daily use, common use. But Paul says this, if anybody cleanses himself of what is unfit, he will be a vessel of honor. He'll be like gold. He'll be pure. He'll be royal. He'll live that life of blessing. And Paul says we can each have that as we walk away from sin, walk away from fear, 
proclaim that he is Lord, and trust, again, that he is the one that rebuilds things that are destroyed. Not the naysayers talking about all the doom and gloom. What does Jesus say? He's moving things back to that garden picture. We are to partner with him in that process as he restores all things. We want to be the gold, the silver, used for something honorable, vessels of honor. The verse we talk about often to memorize is 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Don't let others convince you otherwise. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That means we are victorious in him. Yes, there are challenges. There are always challenges. Whether it's 2008, whether it's today, whether it's something six months from now, that doesn't change the fact. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. And the promise then is we are to live that faith out. There are naysayers that challenge that for their own agendas. Don't shrink in fear. We step into the faith. We step into life. We step into culture and proclaim he is crowned both Christ and King. Jay Ritter said it well. Resist the devil. Take your stand against him. You'll find him powerless. So again, what is the picture in Scripture? Moving all of history to the promise that the light has come in and the darkness cannot overcome it. That Christ is king and one day he shall come back, but not for a destroyed church, but for a victorious bride. Victorious because he is moving history back to the original intent. And that standard is to look back to Eden where there was no death, there was no sin, no disease, and Satan didn't have free reign. People walked in dominion changing the world we simply look at gold and say that was everywhere because it was a symbol of the royal life the abundant life the blessing life resist the devil take your stand against him you'll find him powerless you know tony robbins shared a few years back he was teaching a seminar and as they closed the seminar that night he said you know Let's answer a question. When do people really start living? And this one particular lady, she shared her story and she said, you know, before coming to this seminar, a couple things happened. She said, years ago, I was dating this man. He was the victim of a violent crime and he lost his life. She said, we were engaged at the time. It broke my heart. So fearful to love again, she found herself in a new relationship and this new man asked her, will you marry me? And she said, no. And then she went to this seminar. And as we were answering this question, when do people really start living? She said, I want to start living. She knew it was the middle of the night where he was. She was in Fiji. He was all the way across the world. So she called and left a, a voicemail and said, I will marry you. I love you. I can't wait till we can talk. And then she went to bed. And when he got up the next morning, he would leave her a different type of message because she was still asleep, but it was morning where he was. And where he was was New York City. And that morning was 9-11, and he was in one of the towers. And he left her a voicemail and said, I got your message, and you have no idea how much this means to me. He said, but I don't think I'm going to make it through today. And he said, I bet you're going to wonder 
Why would God allow this to happen to you twice to two fiancés? And all I can say to you is I think the lesson for you is don't wait. She made a choice and has been living out that choice to not wait. You know, don't wait to do the things you know you're called to do. Don't wait to give the love you're meant to give. Don't wait to bring healing to that relationship. Don't wait to become the person you know you're called to be. You know, culture, it changes. It flows in different places. There's fears. There's doubts. There's, you know, people on the the news all the time or, or politicians that might say things, the naysayers. We don't go by that. We go by the promise that we live in Christ. And he has already come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. That he is the one who rebuilds broken things. So one day people are going to look and say everything is just like the Garden of Eden. But until that time comes, we are called to say let's not wait to be who we are meant to be. Don't shrink back in fear. We proclaim just like the hymn says, he is Lord, he is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know and proclaim the devil does not win this fight. Not today, not tomorrow, not when all of this is over and new challenges arise. Because the battle's already been won in Christ. And we need to live that truth and walk out that truth, embrace that truth, be the witness to that truth, and simply proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.